we turn once again to the letter to the Colossians. And again, the first chapter. Chapter 1 of Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain, uh, domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we give thanks to God for these public readings of his infallible and inerrant word. Now we turn once again to this first chapter of uh, uh, Paul's letter to the uh, church in Colossae. One very characteristic thing about Paul's uh, ministry, Paul's life and his writing, was the emphasis that he had on prayer, both private and corporate. Now, it would seem that the news that Paul had received from Colossae had caused a great upsurge in prayer. Verse 9 says, And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, and so on. Now the church in Colossae, as I mentioned this morning, and um, next week we'll have a, a look in a bit more detail at this, but uh, the church in Colossae was facing heresy. They were facing teachers from within the congregation. It wasn't so much people coming in from outside. It was those that were already within the congregation 
who had embraced these new teachings and were trying to pass them on uh, to the other people within the congregation. And the main problem that they had was with these false teachers called Gnostics, from the Greek word meaning knowledge. And their basic tenet was that it's all very well to have Christ. It's all very well to be born again, and that's necessary. But it's not enough. You need something else. You need this, and it comes from the word itself, uh, gnosis, knowledge. You need more knowledge. And this knowledge comes through special visions, or it comes through learning certain passwords, learning certain metaphysical things, and that will make you a better Christian. It will give you the kind of knowledge that you need to know of God. They were saying you need more detailed metaphysical and philosophical knowledge. So what does Paul pray for? when he prays for these Christians. Well, look at it. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Here Paul is counteracting the teaching of these Gnostic heretics. He's saying, they tell you that you need their knowledge. But what I'm praying for, says Paul, what I'm praying for for you is that you have true biblical spiritual knowledge. And that's the first thing we're going to look at, a prayer for knowledge. Paul knew that it was impossible to serve God properly without a clear understanding of what he requires from his people. We have that in Acts chapter 22 and Romans 12 and so on. Now, the knowledge that Paul prayed for was not a theoretical head knowledge that can so easily lead to pride. What he was praying for was a profound experimental knowledge of the revealed will of God because that that leads to practical application and obedience in the daily life of the believer. He didn't want them to be puffed up with head knowledge. What he wanted was that they would have the knowledge of God that would translate into godly action in their own daily lives. He prays for knowledge, and he asks, first of all, that it be a true knowledge. A true knowledge. This knowledge is to be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the goal that Paul sets before them is the one that's set before all believers. It's the goal that's set before us here in Newtonards this evening. And that it is that goal of living to the honor and the praise and the glory of God. That is the goal, or should be the goal, of every Christian. And wisdom from the Holy Spirit is essential if the believer is to use the best methods to achieve this goal. Put in other words, it's 
likeness to Christ, likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul wanted the believers here in Colossae to know, that true spiritual knowledge did not come <coughs> from the knowledge of, <coughs> excuse me, from the knowledge of occult secrets and the use of magical passwords that the Gnostics taught. But he said, this knowledge comes from a spirit-led understanding of the word of God and a spirit-enabled application of the word to the heart and life of the believer. A spirit-led understanding of the word. Now, how does that come? Well, quite simply, we have been given the word of God. When we read the word of God, whether that's in public or in private, when we read the word of God, do we ask for the Holy Spirit to interpret the word to us? Or do we read the scriptures more as a, a kind of duty that's imposed upon us? And we simply open it up, perhaps we're going through a book or going through the whole Bible, whatever. We take it and we read it, and having read it, that's it. That's our duty done for the day. Or when we take the scriptures, do we, do we pray? Do we say to God, this is your word. Show me what it means. Teach me what it means today. And teach me how, and that's the second part. You see, uh, there's the, the understanding, the spirit-led understanding of the word and a spirit-led application of the word. How does this scripture impact upon my daily life today? How is this Bible passage that I've, word, that I've read, how does that enable me today to glorify God in what I do? And that's, that's what Paul was praying for. It's the kind of wisdom spoken of by James when he wrote, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So that's what Paul prays for these believers, that they might have a knowledge of God that comes through his word. It's a true knowledge, not this airy-fairy nonsense of the Gnostics. He wanted them to have true knowledge that only comes from God through his word. But not only a true knowledge, a practical knowledge. When Paul prayed that the believers might increase in the knowledge of the will of God, in verse 9, it was not so that they would be able to parade their knowledge and be proud of their achievement. As far as Paul was concerned, the purpose of his prayer, and he has a single purpose, was that the believers would live lives that were pleasing to the Lord. And this life of God-pleasing we see in four phrases here. First of all, it is a life of fruit-bearing. The Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 15 speaks of the inevitability of fruit-bearing 
in the life of anyone who is joined to the vine. Verse 5. The Lord Jesus Christ compared the believer as a branch that's joined to the vine. And he says, if we are joined to the vine, then we will bring forth fruit. After all, what's the point of having a tree that's there that's supposed to be a fruit tree and it bears nothing? Jesus says, if it doesn't do that, it's cut down. There is an inevitability of fruit bearing if we are joined to the vine. And we know what sort of fruit that is You all know the passage in Galatians chapter 5 when when the apostle contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we are truly joined to the vine, then these, I was going to say fruits of the Spirit, but they're not. It's one fruit. It's one fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, singular. So there should be elements of all these things manifested in our lives. And if they're not there, then we need to seriously ask the question, Are we truly joined to the vine? As I said this morning, are we true believers or do we just have the appearance of believers? Do we just do the things that believers do? Or are we truly joined to the vine? This fruit, because being joined to Christ means inevitably that there will be fruit demonstrated in our lives. That's what Paul says here. It's a life of fruit-bearing. But the second thing he mentions here is it is a life of increasing knowledge. It's a life of increasing knowledge. And the more knowledge a person has of Christ, the more he will want to know. The Christian will never, ever get to the point where he says, I know everything about God and everything about Christ that I need to know. Anyone who says that demonstrates that he is not a true believer. We will never know God as we want to know him until we're in glory. Until we see him face to face, we will never know enough about Christ Paul cries out in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Oh, that I might know him. Oh, that I might know him. It wasn't that Paul didn't know Christ. Of course he did. But he wanted to know more and more and more. It's a life of increasing knowledge. And surely, the more knowledge we have of Christ, the more we should want to know the more we should desire to know of him, to know of his love, his mercy, his grace, to know everything about him. 
And Paul prays that for the believers. He prays that they may have lives bearing fruit to the honor and glory of Christ. He prays that they may have increasing knowledge, that they might know him better. But it is a life of continual strengthening. The inherent weakness of even the best of the saints of God is overcome by the over, uh, overpowering, indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of God. And the more we know of Christ, the more we know of him and the resources of power at our disposal through Christ, the more we are able to say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I wonder, do we actually know that in our own experience? Or or are we sometimes defeated by the challenges that come upon us? The challenges to live godly lives ourselves. The challenges to know more of Christ. The challenges that face us day by day. Are we sometimes, do we sometimes feel overwhelmed by them? Or do we have this constant understanding that Paul had? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Perhaps it's because we don't know very much of the strengthening of Christ. Perhaps we rely too much upon our own strength and our own wisdom and our own understanding that we do not go to Christ to seek his strengthening, his power in difficult circumstances. This strength enables the believer to cope with difficult circumstances, what the Bible calls steadfastness, and to face opposition and persecution, to have that patience that is so often spoken of in the scripture. So it's a life of fruit-bearing, it's a life of increasing knowledge, it's a life of continual strengthening, and it is a life of joyful thanksgiving. One of the characteristic marks of the apostles and of the first century Christians was that they were able to rejoice in the most adverse of circumstances. Even suffering the most awful persecutions, they were enabled to rejoice And there's an astonishing statement here that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They considered it to be a privilege to suffer for Christ, to be counted worthy to suffer with Christ. What happens to us when we suffer in one way or another Why me? If we suffer for Christ, why me? Why should this happen to me? It's not fair. But Paul and the other believers were able to rejoice that they were suffering for the cause of Christ. Not because they'd done anything wrong, but because they were faithful to God, they were faithful to Christ, 
and so they counted it a privilege to suffer for him. The prayer that begins in verse 9 here continues with reasons why the Colossian Christians should be thankful. So we've seen a prayer for knowledge. Then secondly, we see that this is a precious knowledge. It is a precious knowledge. Paul tells them that they had received an inheritance that was much more precious than anything else they could possibly imagine. Now, we know that the ancient tribes in Israel all had a share in the inheritance in the promised land. Paul now relates this in a spiritual sense to believers, that they have an inheritance. He says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so you may walk, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and so on. An inheritance. And if that applied to the believers in Colossae, it applies to us as well. We have received an inheritance from God. First of all, it is an inheritance sovereignly bestowed. It is not obtained by right, by merit, but received only through the glorious, gracious activity of God. This inheritance is not one restricted by birth, or by nationality, but is the common possession of everyone who is born again. Everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ can take comfort from the words that Paul mentions here. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How else could we be qualified? How else could we be qualified to receive an inheritance from God? We're sinners. By ourselves, in our nature, we hate God. We do not want to be subjected to his law, to his word. But we have been qualified, not by our own merit or by what we do ourselves, but because God has qualified us to share in the inheritance in light. It is an inheritance sovereignly, bestowed. It is described as an inheritance in light. Now the word light in scripture is often used to symbolize the knowledge of God, the love of God, the peace of God, and joy in God. It is connected with holiness In Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, we read this. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified or holy. 
It has to do with revelation. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. This inheritance that we have is an inheritance in holiness. It's an inheritance that gives us revelation from God. It's an inheritance in love. 1 John chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So this knowledge that Paul prays for is a precious knowledge. This inheritance from God, holiness, revelation, love, and glory. The inheritance, therefore, is nothing less than a full and free salvation. And that's what Paul is rejoicing in. It's a precious knowledge. But thirdly, and finally, it is a purchased knowledge. This glorious inheritance that has been obtained for the believer in a wonderful act of rescue. Those who trust in Christ, says Paul, have been rescued from the domain of darkness. Darkness in the scripture speaks of sin, disobedience, rebellion, and death. And it is a condition into which all are born and from which no one can free themselves. We have been delivered from, we've been rescued from the domain of darkness. And this rescue was effected by God the Father sending the Son of his love into this sinful world to bear the punishment that was due to sin, and thus tear his elect from the dominion of Satan. Now, this rescue, this great rescue, has made a change as dramatic as it is possible to make it. There are four things. First of all, those who have been rescued have a new master. Let's never forget that before we came to Christ, we were under the dominion of Satan. We might have thought that everything we did, we did because we wanted to. That we were not under anybody's dominion. We were not taken captive by anybody. But when our eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit, we then begin to see that truly we were under the dominion of Satan, we were his slaves, we did what he wanted us to do, and we had no way of rejecting it. But now, now we have a new master. We are not any longer slaves to Satan. We are no longer slaves to our sinful nature. We no longer do those things 
that we did do in order to please ourselves. Because now we have a new master. We have a new master whom we love. We have a master who is kind and gracious and good and only seeks our good. We have a new master. But not only a new master, we have a new citizenship. We no longer belong to this world. There was an old song that used to go around, this world is not my home. And it's true, this world is not our home. We often talk about where we come from, our home, where we live, and yet we have a new citizenship. There are many people in this province who love to shout about their citizenship, whether that be a citizenship in the United Kingdom or whether that be a citizenship in the Republic of Ireland. But they love to go on about their citizenship. Now, it may be that we prefer to live in one state rather than another. That may be true. But our citizenship is not in the United Kingdom or in the Republic of Ireland. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have a new citizenship. Our chief desire should be to promote the glory of Zion. Our chief interest should be in the prosperity of Zion, the prosperity of the church and the advancement of the church of Christ. We have a new master. We have a new citizenship. And isn't it wonderful that one day we shall realize fully what that citizenship entails? Because one day we will leave this scene of time. One day we will pass from what is earthly and temporal and we will pass into the presence of our Lord and Master. We shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. And we shall rejoice in all the glories of our citizenship in heaven, our heavenly citizenship. We have a new master. We have a new citizenship. We have a new standing. We have a new standing before God. Once upon a time, the wrath of God was upon us. Once upon a time, we deserved nothing but his wrath and his condemnation. But now, now, we are the children of God. Now we are the sons and daughters of God. Now we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our elder brother. We are in the family of God. We have a new standing before God. He no, he no longer looks upon us with disapproval. He no longer looks upon us as enemies, but he looks upon us as friends. I have called you friends, said Jesus. And so it is. We have a new master, a new citizenship, a new standing before God. And what I've mentioned previously, 
a new destination, a new destination. We are no longer of this earth. We are of heaven. We have our citizenship in heaven and we look forward to that day when we shall see him as he is. What a glorious day that will be. It may come through death. It may come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth. But one day, one day, we will be in that destination promised by the Lord Jesus Christ. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that a wonderful, a wonderful thought? That the Lord Jesus Christ has prepared a place specifically for you. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's, think of a, think of a, a housing estate. There, there is a house there is a place that already has your name on it and it's reserved for you. Nobody else can go into it. No one else can squat in it. It will not be given to anybody else but you because the Lord Jesus Christ said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, for you. For you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a new master, we have a new citizenship, we have a new destination. What better reason is there for continual thanksgiving? And that's what Paul says here. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.